You're listening to the Ladies Do Comics podcast. And in this episode, which was recorded in conjunction with Paul Gravett's Comica Festival, we're proud to present a Q&A with American graphic novelist Alison Bechdel, recorded at Foils Autumn 2012, in which the author is talking about her latest graphic novel, Are You My Mother?, and taking questions from the audience. Alison's talk is introduced by Nicola Streeton. I'm Nicola Streeton, and I started Ladies Do Comics in 2009 with artist Sarah Lightman, who can't be here today, but we've got her dad here, so direct any questions about her to him. Thank you for coming. So um, I think without further ado, uh, let's have a big welcome to Alison, who um, we're really excited. part of Comica, part of Ladies Who Do Comics, and Foils, thank you so much for having me. What I'm going to do is read to you a little section of my strange new book, and then talk a little bit about how I make my comics. Okay, so I wrote this very odd book about my mother, a sort of a memoir, um, but it's also about a lot of other things. It's about the psychoanalyst Donald Winnicott, it's about how we come to think of ourselves as selves. So in the section that I'm going to read to you from, I need to explain just a few things. One, I refer in this section to Alice Miller's book, The Drama of the Gifted Child. Uh, That's sort of a running theme throughout my book. And I will also quote some of Winnicott's work. And one other thing I need to mention before I read is that in my late 20s, I saw a really wonderful and skilled therapist (coughs) named Jocelyn for about four years. And I was living in the Midwest, in Minneapolis, at the time, but then I moved away and that therapy ended. So the scene I'm going to read to you begins when I was 40, like 12 years ago, in my first session with my current therapist, Carol. It's all a little contorted and twisted. But here we go. Here I am. And you're not supposed to write about yourself in therapy, but I I did it. I'm I'm sorry. (laughs) I'd worked with a few other therapists in the preceding years, but Carol had more credentials than any of them, even Jocelyn. After exactly four sessions with Carol, I had occasion to return to Minnesota for the first time since I'd left a decade earlier. I'd been invited to speak at the university. I would be staying with my ex, Eloise, and Chris, the woman she had left me for, in my old neighborhood. They'd been together for 13 years at that point. The three of us had long since gotten over the affair and breakup and now enjoyed a warm rapport. While I was in town, it occurred to me to try and schedule a visit with Jocelyn. The 10 years collapsed as if I'd never left. She looked exactly the same. In an odd coincidence, she'd just been culling old files and when she got to mine, had read the entire thing. It was, of course, interesting timing that I should revisit my old therapist just as I was beginning work with a new one. I had some need to forge a link between them, or to pit them against one another. In fact, all along, I've been pitting myself against each of them in turn. What I really want is to cure myself, to be my own analyst. 
The particular gifted child Alice Miller is talking about is the psychoanalyst. Every one of the psychoanalytic trainees she has supervised has the same history. An insecure parent who did not appear to be insecure, but who depended on the child behaving in a particular way. And an amazing ability on the part of the child to perceive this and take on the assigned role. These are the people who tend to grow up to analyze other people. Psychoanalytic insight, Miller seems to suggest, is itself a pathological symptom. <laughs> and surely Winnicott was thinking of himself when he made this observation about the person whose psyche has been seduced into their mind. He gives an illustration of his work with a 47-year-old woman who felt completely dissatisfied as if always aiming to find herself and never succeeding. The woman had already been analyzed to no avail. Winnicott could see that she must make a very severe regression or else give up the struggle. She kept a detailed diary of her analysis with Winnicott, but at the climax of their work, she stopped writing in it. The woman was now able to feel something she described as a not knowing. Acceptance of not knowing, Winnicott writes, produced tremendous relief. It took several years before I could begin to understand Carol's diagnosis. After my therapist became an analyst, I started lying down for my <laughs> sessions instead of sitting. <laughs> the irony of the fact that I'm writing a book about all this is not lost on me. Yet I don't seem to have a choice. In her 1928 diary, Virginia Woolf makes a second mention of how writing to the lighthouse released her from her parents' thrall. Once when I was around five, my mother had a bad migraine. Dad was taking us kids away somewhere to give her a break. This glimpse of my mother's private agony only confirmed what I already knew. Alice Miller talks of the amazing ability of the gifted child to perceive others' needs. Winnicott uses the words marvelous and magical. In Winnicott's obituary, a friend and colleague described his astonishing powers with children. A glimpse of him at work is visible in The Piggle, a published case history of his analysis of a little girl. In their first consultation, the girl is two years and four months old. At first, it seems absurd that Winnicott is bothering to write down in detail the nonsense of a toddler, but then you see that she's explaining her problem quite coherently. This was evidently the correct thing to say, Winnicott notes, since the girl began giving him an account of the time her little sister was born. The girl, Gabrielle, had been listless and sad since the birth of this second baby eight months earlier. She was also having regular nightmares about something called a baba car. This mystified her parents. A month after her first visit with Winnicott, the girl asked to see him again. The girl was silent. I then interpreted, Winnicott writes, I took a risk. By my calculations, I'm exactly a year older than Gabrielle. Winnicott saw her infrequently until she was five. She played out the mysteries of sex, birth, love, hate, death, the self, the other, and whether God exists. Winnicott played, too. <laughs> I'm curious about whether Gabrielle might have written about her analysis with Winnicott, but I can't find anything. Maybe his treatment was so effective she didn't need to write about it. 
She's probably just off living her life somewhere. And that's the end of the reading part. Okay, thank you. I'm just going to talk a little bit about my process. It's kind of odd for me not to be able to see the screen either. Um, people often ask me, do you, do you write first or do you draw first? And it's a complicated question to answer, so I had to make a little video to explain it. Because um, I, I sort of do both things at once. I have developed a style of working in um, Adobe Illustrator, which is a, I, a drawing program. So I write in a drawing program. Uh, like this. I have a template that I make with these blue lines, uh, a standard grid that I can adapt to any number of different configurations. Like here I'm changing it from six panels to three little panels over one large panel. What I love about writing in this drawing program is, I, well, I, when I first started writing graphic memoir with my book Fun Home, I, I was doing it in a word processing program. And I, I was just typing, you know, typing down scenes I'd like to include in the book, but I felt that I wasn't able to really think through what I needed to stuck in this text-based <coughs> thing. A word processing program, if you think about it, is just like, it's kind of one-dimensional. It's like one line of text that just goes from left to right across the page forever, and then it jumps the gutter and keeps going for as many pages as you have. Um, but writing comics is, is two-dimensional. Everything that you write or draw has to fit in a specific place on the page. Uh, and it's, it's a very demanding medium in that way. So doing it on the computer just enables me to make a lot of experimental attempts that I might not if I were actually drawing on paper. So I have a, a digital font that I can just make a text box and start writing anywhere on the page. Uh, it's very easy to change the design, like I decided that this would work better as a wide panel instead of two half-page panels, and it's really easy to just stretch things out. This would be a fine sentence if, if I were writing prose, but because I'm writing comics and every inch counts, I, if I can make this fit into three lines instead of four, I will do it. And that gives me like another eighth of an inch for my drawing. And maybe this sounds like kind of a sterile way to work. <laughs> I'm not really using a pencil even at this stage of, of creating. But I, I do make sketches. What I'm doing here is placing a sketch I've already made and scanned into the computer onto this page. And I also I steal stuff from other places. Like on, on that page, there was something from a book that I scanned and something I lifted from the internet. So it, I think of this process of designing the page and pulling illustrations in as a, a kind of drawing. It feels like it, it's drawing without the pencil. And then I place each of those illustrator pages in a word, um, what do you call it, a page layout program in InDesign so I can get a sense of how the piece is building as a whole. And then when I'm happy with the writing, I, I print it out just on a sheet of typing paper. Now, and sometimes I make little drawings in Illustrator. That's a Illustrator sketch, but I'm not very good at drawing in Illustrator. I don't know how to work with <coughs> tools. I try to learn as little about these programs as possible because <laughs> otherwise I would spend my life just in Photoshop. So I start sketching very rough drawings on that typing paper. And what I do at this stage is a lot of visual research, including posing for my scenes. And this was a very odd 
seen to pose for because it was me doing what I just do all the time every day, but I still had to take a picture of it. Uh, this is a snapshot of my mother and I that I used for this scene I'm drawing. The drawing gets more refined and detailed as I do this research and sketch again and again. Uh, then I have a final tight pencil, which I do in uh, blue, blue pencil so I don't have to erase it. I ink that, scan it into Photoshop and polish up all the mistakes. I color it in Photoshop, which is just like these little areas. I do my shading on a separate layer of watercolor paper on a light box looking at the line art underneath. And then I scan that into Photoshop and combine everything. Then I add the text and it's done. I just want to show you some of these, um, <laughs> some of these posing scenarios that I did there. That's me posing for my mother in this scene. There were a lot of aerial shots in this book, uh, looking down from overhead, and I was always running up and down stairs from my, this loft in my house. I had to be really fast before the shutter went off. <laughs> and I, often it gets very athletic. Here I am posing for, <laughs> for this scene. And here is a whole, I took a, like dozens of pictures of me posing as Donald Winnicott. For this <laughs> I don't always put costumes on, but sometimes I have to. <laughs> okay, that's all I have. Um, thank you. And I guess we're going to do questions. Hello, Rachel. Hello. Hi. I love all your books, and I really love uh, the new ones, The Fun Home and I You My Mother. But I'm interested in the fact they've got all this critical acclaim, and the Dykes Torch Out For seem to have this niche audience. And I think Dykes to Watch Out For are just as important to me. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Yeah. I'd like you to tell me about that. Thank you. Well, that, no, that's very interesting to me. You know, when I first started drawing Dykes to Watch Out For in the 1980s, I thought, oh, this is, you know, I know this is kind of edgy and subcultural, but... I bet I can win people over. I bet with enough time, I will win over a mainstream audience to my lesbian comic strip. And I believed that for a long time, and then it just never happened. And I finally one day realized it's never going to happen. Um, and so in the meantime, I started working on these other projects, on this autobiographical stuff. And as I was working on Fun Home, it seemed just as queer and strange and idiosyncratic as dykes to watch out for, but uh, for some reason, it got a lot of attention. It got a lot, lot of um, good reviews and just a lot of hype about it. Uh, and I don't know. I don't know quite what to make of it. To be fair, I feel like dykes to watch out for was starting to get a broader audience right at the point when I, I stopped doing it. Um, like I had just published this big collection of them, and but but it doesn't sell like Fun Home. It's just not the same for some reason. Um, I feel kind of bad about that. Like why don't people want to read about lesbians' lives? But on the other hand, they are because I'm writing about my own lesbian life in these memoirs. So it's it's odd, but I'll I'll take it. To what extent? Sorry. Sorry. Cena, hello. Um, I just was wondering, like, to what extent Dykes to Watch Out For began as autobiographical? Because um, I know you've talked.
talked about mowers being kind of your avatar at some point. Yes. Um, and how, just how you started doing it and how it developed from there. That would be really interesting. Um, that's a good question. I'm sort of half standing so I can see. <laughs> Wait. Maybe I'll just stand up. That's easier. Um, Dykes Watch Out For was never strictly autobiographical, but it was very much about the kind of life I was leading and my friends were leading. But I never, sometimes people ask me, you know, do, do those characters really exist somewhere? <laughs> like, are you just writing about your friends? And no, I, those are not real people. I, they're all aspects of my own self that I would sort of channel. Um, and sometimes little bits of my real life would creep in, but it was never autobiographical <coughs> in the sense that Fun Home or this book about my mother are autobiographical. Uh, but I was always really drawn to writing about my real life. I felt like it, there was something very self-indulgent and wrong about it, but I still really wanted <laughs> to do it, and I've just allowed myself to do it. So that's the answer to that. Yes? <coughs> Incredibly prolific. I don't. I never feel like I am. I feel like it takes me very, very long to do anything, and I, I wasn't. I do write about depression in this book about my mother, this sort of like a family history of depression. But I, I only personally had a very brief period of being really clinically depressed in my youth, and that I, I did manage to do some work at that time, but it was so hard. It was just you know, used, it took all of my effort to draw a line. Um, but that being said, in this book about my mother, just writing about being depressed was kind of depressing. <laughs> I, I write in this book about all kinds of unpleasant emotions, about shame and anxiety, and, and I found myself kind of li reliving all of those as I, as I worked on this book over a period of years, and it was really unpleasant. Um, but I don't, I don't really have any tips for how to work through depression. I think it's extraordinarily difficult, and sometimes people can manage it, and sometimes they can't. That was really a downer. <laughs> <laughs> yes? It's a bit funny when it goes back to kind of how you wrote Dice Watch Out For, but I'm so curious. Um, how do you, I know you're living closer on the, on the East Coast, but like I was living on the West Coast and you wrote about lots of things that were happening where I was, but in such detail that it felt like you were there. So how did you, like, how did you write about those things? I mean, was it through friends who were living all over the place or was it through reading articles or just following the news? Like I, w I used to follow the news a lot. 
I, d I don't anymore. I've given up on the world. Um, but when I was writing Dykes, I, I had to pay a lot of attention to what was happening in, in current events in general, but specifically in the queer community. I was reading lots of gay newspapers because I, I would get them all because my comic strip was in them. So I felt very tapped into all the, you know, politics and cultural shifts of the queer community. And that would just funnel that back into my work, like a biofeedback loop. <laughs> Anyone else? Sarah's dad. When you write about your family, you take into account whether what you say may upset members of your family. <laughs> I, that's a very good question that always comes up at some point when I'm talking. Um, is that me wrestling? What is that? I think it's it was you. Oh. It's me, look. <laughs> <laughs> Doing that. <laughs> <laughs> um, my, I do take into account that it is not pleasant for my family for me to be writing about them. But I guess I just am willing to live with that discomfort. Um, I feel like the particular, my particular damage in my, is that my family was very cold and remote and distant. And so what that yielded was a person who is cold and remote and distant enough to write books about her family. <laughs> <laughs> if I were more well-adjusted, I probably would. <laughs> but I do, I try to be cognizant of their feelings. I try to be, I try to proceed in an ethical way by checking in with them. I showed this book to my mother as I was writing it, which, I don't know, may or may not have been a good idea. I feel like it sort of compromised the book in a way because I was so anxious about her response. It might have been a different book if I hadn't done that, but I had to do it. And with Fun Home, I showed that to both my brothers first just to make sure they were okay with it. No one had any big complaints. You know, they had a few little things they wanted me to change, and I, I did that. So I try to get people to buy into what I'm doing, to be okay with it. And I, in, in my new book, I wrote not just about my family, but different friends, and I, I showed them all what I was writing about them and made sure they were all okay, too. Some of them I haven't heard back from <laughs> <laughs> since they gave me their okay, so I don't know what's going on there, but maybe one day I'll find out. Yes? Hi, I'm Lucy. Hi, Lucy. No, that was a transition that was really exciting and fun to me. With with my comic strip, I had this very constrained space that I was working in every two weeks. I had like enough room for maybe ten panels. And often my dialogue would take up half of each panel. So I was always having to just draw heads, you know, talking heads or maybe tiny little silhouettes of characters, but it was very rare that I had enough room to draw a full body. So in a full-length book format, I have page after page of all this space, so I'm able to 
stretch out my drawing in a way that feels very good. Ariel. Um, just wondering about the transition from writing the pen and ink to the, to the computer and all of that. Because you were showing us the layers and everything. Yeah. I mean, and, 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 and how, first of all, I guess when really you started doing that. And also, why? I don't know. For me, certainly, one of the things with the drawing, it really, I like the ink and the paper and how it works. And it's a whole, well, the textures are all different. So, I mean, do you feel that that's somehow improving what you're doing or it's just a different journey that you're going on? Well, I still draw on actual paper with actual pen and ink. Uh, It just gets put through the computer. I don't actually draw on the computer. I I type on the computer. So you're still doing all of the, it's just helping you to speed up the in-between bits? I don't, it's not, I, I... when I first started out cartooning in the 80s, of course there was no nothing digital. And I just as technology became available, I started adopting it. I, I, I love the computer and I love the stuff I've been able to do. Um, you know, mostly scanning stuff I've already drawn in the actual physical world and then being able to fix it or adjust it in Photoshop. Not actually drawing, just fixing stuff, layering things. Um, and then I'm learning how to do stuff like color, and it just has crept up on me over the years. You know, in the old days, I would have to take my drawing and make a photostat of it. I don't know if you call those that here, but like an actual photograph that I would then photocopy and then mail 50 copies to different newspapers. It was like tying something to a carrier pigeon. <laughs> um, but then eventually I, I was able to email artwork and that was amazing to me. Uh, so I've just ad- adopted everything very gradually and now it's, my process involves a lot of time on the computer, but I, I, I like it, it's fun. Jamie, um, you mentioned that you were a little nervous about asking this question. Uh-oh. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm <better. laughs> Have you considered, or has anybody approached you about doing an animated series of your work? Oh. I, oh. <laughs> <laughs> there, like, so many times, I can't even tell you how many times people came to me with ideas about animating Dykes to Watch Out For, and none of them ever came to anything. Um, I, at, at first I was excited. I thought, oh, this would be really fun, and I'd love to learn how to animate, and I just sort of lost my excitement about it after all these things kept falling through. And I, I realized I'm really not interested in animation. I, and I would want to be in charge. I'd want to do it myself or at least have a big hand in it. And I, I, I like doing books. I like doing things that you sit with quietly. <laughs> um, and I think Dykes just wasn't sexy in, you know, in the sense that they could find sponsors. You need so much money to make a, an animated movie. So it just never quite happened. Good Thanks. question, though. Pam. Uh, any news on the musical? <laughs> <laughs> um, there is a musical uh, based on Fun Home that is happening. <laughs> I know, doesn't that sound crazy? I thought that was insane, but actually it's uh, pretty good from what I've seen so far. Uh, and it's it's in a workshop at the Public Theater in New York right now, and they, uh, they have 
three Allisons. They have a little girl, <laughs> a college-age actress, and then a, like a 40-year-old actor playing my adult self. And they've done an amazing job. Like my, my family is on stage singing and dancing. <laughs> <laughs> but in a tasteful way. <laughs> We were talking beforehand about her. She just wrote a graphic novel, and I was asking her if you had um, theory, if you were talking about ideas. But it sounds like you weren't. I was, but it's quite it's quite embedded. I wasn't working with the text at uh -huh. the time. It's, it's stuff that I was kind of finding. Well, I've, I have mixed feelings about how the all the quotations work. I think I probably could have used less of those. I think when I look at the book now, it feels like it interrupts my narrative a little bit. But I was very determined to convey these quite complicated psychoanalytic ideas <coughs> to the reader, because I found them so exciting, but they took me a lot of time to learn about. I, you know, it took me like six years to write the book, and a lot of the time was just research, reading psychoanalysis and learning all about Donald Winnicott's work. So. That felt like I had to include some of the actual text as part of that project. Sorry, I'm, I'm, uh, I have nothing more clever to say on that. <laughs> uh, in the back there. Um, I was wondering, you started the book off trying to write it about your mother, but it ended up being more about yourself. Were you disappointed at all that you didn't find out more about your mother whilst writing the book? I wish I could have found out more about her. And there's so many huge <coughs> questions, like obligatory questions about her that I don't even approach. Like, what was it like to be married to a gay man for 20 years? <laughs> and I, but I couldn't ask her those things. I couldn't ask her anything. Why? Oh, she wouldn't tell me. She would get mad. <sighs> no, no, she, actually, when I was writing Fun Home, she told me, when I told her I was writing about my dad. She said, okay, you're cut off. I'm not telling you anything else about your father. And I, that went for, for her too, I guess. She felt like it would mean she was collaborating with me, I think, or that she would somehow be complicit in what I was doing. And she, to her credit, said, this is your story, your version of events. It's not mine. Uh, but unfortunately, that meant I, I don't know a lot of stuff about her. And I never will because she knows what I'll do with it. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's a good place to end. Or do we, I don't know, I don't want to cut us off if people how, are... How long have we got? What time? It's only quarter two now. Great, we've got, got five minutes. Yes. Okay, five minutes. <laughs> um, yes. Hi, um, Paula. Um, Hi, read that you kept extensive diaries throughout your life, so I was wondering if you could just say a little bit about writing autobiography and memory, and how much your memory, how much of your, is it mainly 
the stuff from your diaries that goes into your work, or do you use your diaries to kind of spring off further memories, if you see what I mean? That's a, that's a very good question. I, sometimes I wish that I had not kept such a detailed diary, because it's so much material to wade through. It's like staggering. For a period of my life, I wrote down everything I did every day. Not just like a journal, like when I was heartbroken or angry, but this little log of where I went and who I saw, which is kind of fascinating to me for about five minutes. <laughs> but it's such a dense, you know, log of material, it's hard to find stuff that means anything. So I, I don't, I wish I relied more on memory. I think that would be a good thing. Rely, it, for the same reason I used all the quotations in, in both of these autobiographical works, I, I rely, it's like I want to rely on other people. I don't want to say what I really feel or think, so I find ways to avoid it. But I think in the future I want to rely more on my own memory and my own ideas and not have to use other people as crutches. So that's a good question. Like, but that's not stopping me from actually tr transcribing all of my diary entries into one long computer file that I could search. <laughs> I know, it's a kind of illness. <laughs> but I have to do it. Speaking yes, about, Paul. Speaking about, about giving uh, diaries, do you also keep, have you kept, were the diaries illustrated or are they just purely text? And were they ever kind of reflective? Did you ever, was it actually, I did this, I met this person, or were you ever doing the kind of reflection that you do now so well yes. in graphic novels. Were you doing it, doing that as well? In yes. I, yeah. I, they were separate, actually. I had the, the daily log, and then I had the journal of feelings and right. emotions. Sure. Yes. <laughs> um, and sometimes there, there would be illustrations, but they weren't done as comics at all. No. Just some spontaneous drawings would pop up. And do you still do that today? Um, no, I do something all sort of really different. Today I, I keep what I call a work, a daily progress log. But sometimes it feels more like a daily regress log. Um, where I, I'm, I keep track of what I'm writing about, like where I am with my work. But it has turned into a de facto diary because I started writing down everything else I was doing. So that makes it really, it doesn't really work as a work log because it's all filled with information about my life. And it doesn't really work as a diary because it's all filled with where I am and what page I'm writing. It, it's a mess. So maybe you should make it two, two separate things again. I, I should, but yeah. I like or the idea of consolidating. Two pages. One page could be for that. One page could be for that. Yes, that's a, well, that's a good idea, except I do it on the computer. Oh, it's not written down. No, it's not written down. I'm very um, computer dependent. Yeah. Because then I can, I like being able to search things. Yes. You know? yeah. All right, yes. Hi. Uh, I wanted to have a look. Oh, all right, all right, all right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, uh, why I wanted to ask was, uh, Mum, Dad, are the rest of the family coming next? <laughs> yes. Yeah. They, I haven't actually told them that yet. <laughs> but I do want to write about my brothers. More specifically, I want to write about the family as a whole, as a system, because I think that's really interesting, like how families work. I'm starting to learn about family therapy, like 
the different systems of family therapy. Because I just want to figure it out, like what went wrong in my family and what goes right in families that work. Like the idea of a functional family is so entrancing to me. And I think, I think there are some. You know? <laughs> 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 um, but I'm not starting that project just yet because my mother told me to give it a rest, give the family a rest for a little bit. And I'm more than happy to do that because it's been very grueling work. I'm going to try some kind of lighter, easier project. But I, w I do intend to write more about my family. Thank you. Thank you. I have another question. I just thought, isn't this quite hard to do? I mean, because having interviewed uh, Robin and Aileen Crumb about their very candid and biographical material, I mean, you're putting some very private material out for all to see and not for all of us to discuss. And with a, like a, a book tour you're going on, you're yeah. answering questions all around the world. It must be, you said to yourself, the, the thing of going over quite painful material can actually bring back all that pain. It doesn't necessarily give you a, any kind of catharsis or release from it. And, uh, so I wonder how, how that's perhaps a, a challenge in doing well, this. Yeah, it's, <clears throat> it's a really crazy job to have. Mm. Um, but tonight, often what, what's really hard is when I'll go to school groups, like um, c college classes, and talk to <laughs> students, and they want to know all of these very personal things about me and my mother and my father and my brothers. And I find that uncomfortable. But like tonight, nobody got to personal. I could. <laughs> I, I haven't yet learned how to turn some of those really intimate questions into more answers that turn back onto form or how to tell stories or how to be an artist. Um, but I'm working on that. But yeah, it's, it's kind of excruciating. I don't know why I do it. <laughs> Except that I have this weird damage that compels me to. And I enjoy it in some way. And we enjoy it. Yeah, well, I think it's that. Thank you. And <laughs> I think it is that thing. Your audience enjoys it. Well, thank you all very, very much for coming tonight. This was really wonderful. For more information about Alison Bechdel's work, please go to dykestowatchoutfor.com. That's D-Y-K-E-S-T-O-W-A-T-C-H-O-U-T-F-O-R.com. Foils on Charing Cross Road in London is now going to be the new home for Ladies Do Comics in London. And the next meeting is taking place on the 21st of January from 6pm. Guests include Dr. Muna Al-Jawad, a consultant in elderly medicine who is one of the organisers of the 4th International Comics and Medicine Conference. Also, artists John Myers and David Jesus Figanolo will be talking about their work. To book tickets for this free event, please go to ladiesdocomics.com. That's L-A-Y-D-E-E-Z docomics.com. Outside of London, the next meeting of Ladies Do Comics in Leeds is taking place on the 28th of January. And guests include artists Kate Ashwin, Christina Bagzinski, 
and Daryl Cunningham. That's on Monday the 28th at the Wharf Chambers, 23 Wharf Street, Leeds, LS2, 7EQ, from 6.30pm. For more information about the Comica Festival, which this podcast's Q&A and talk by Alison Beckdell was recorded at, please go to comicafestival.com. The Ladies Do Comics podcast was recorded, edited, and introduced by Alex Fitch, is a Panel Borders production, and there'll be a new episode online next month. Thanks for listening.